Thank you, Gary. It's my pleasure and privilege to introduce our first speaker and to chair this first session. Um, Gary has already mentioned that Flavien is now uh, in the John Owen community as a, um, a specialist in biblical studies. And you'll also find information about him and all the other speakers in this leaflet, as well as the timings for the conference. So please do uh, take this, read it. You'll find all sorts of interesting things out about the speakers. Um, I read something this morning I didn't know about one of our speakers. Um, and also please take note of the times, because the times today are not quite the same as tomorrow. And we do want to adhere to these times as rigidly as we can. So Flavien... Um, whenever I've seen Flavien over the last six months or so, he's always been either just come back from somewhere or just about to go to somewhere because he has an international ministry, as you can see uh, uh, from his brief profile in the handout, um, lecturing in se seminaries in uh, Africa and um, parts of Southeast Asia as well, taking his theological and uh, exegetical expertise out there, helping churches and seminaries in those parts of the world. And that's a very exciting thing. It's a tremendous thing to be doing because the, the, the future of the church probably lies in those parts of the world, uh, in Africa and, and Asia, where there's a great work of God's spirit, but there's also a great need for theological engagement, involvement and, and depth. And so we uh, commend his ministry both here and there to the Lord and we're very grateful that he's come and I suppose as a new appointee we can squeeze every last drop out of him and get him to do two talks which is what he's doing today and we look forward very much to hearing what he has to say. Now in order to get the most out of the conference we're going to have three readings now and you won't be surprised uh, what those readings are but it's important for us to begin with the Bible isn't it? So we're going to turn first to Genesis 14 and then to Psalm 110, and then to Hebrews 7. So if, you could like, if you'd like to find Genesis 14 first. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm assuming you know the context of the uh, four kings against five kings, four kings from Mesopotamia, who came down, uh, down the east side of the Jordan, attacked a coalition of five kings around the southeast of the Dead Sea, and... Um, defeated them and carried off the plunder in, which included um, Lot, Abraham's nephew. So picking up the reading at verse 11 of Genesis 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobbar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, 
and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kadolioma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Now Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And finally, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living, powerful, sharp and active word. We thank you that it records history. We thank you that it also interprets history. And we thank you that it has been given to us to understand, to feed on it, to grow by it, and also to most... uh, most of us here to teach it also and to pass on the good things to others. And so we pray you would help us to understand your word. We pray you would help Flavien as he comes now and talks about many of the issues to do with how to understand and interpret your word. And we pray that you would bless us through it and that the blessing that we receive we would pass on to others. For Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so you came to hear about Melchizedek. I, I must say I'm impressed. Um, the task that was appointed to me, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that from the very beginning, I didn't choose the topics. They were assigned to me. Um, but they were quite uh, exciting and intriguing challenges. Now, they've been so challenging that I was still working on what I was going to say this morning in the train on the way here. Um, so, uh, this morning, I will not answer all questions. This morning, I will not be able to tell you everything you wish you knew about Melchizedek. Um, there are way too many. Uh, but, uh, I hope to give you some, some insights into all the wonders of God's word related to Melchizedek. And I do hope to, uh, to intrigue you or interest you or excite you about studying more about Melchizedek. So before we move into the texts and we look at a variety of uh, uh, things related to those texts, let me uh, say a few things um, as a starter. Um, First, you will have to forgive me for uh, uh, my language. You'll have to forgive my accents. A weird mix of continental and American accents. You'll have to forgive my American dialect. Um, if I don't use the proper British um, idioms, you'll know why. Um, I also want to give you a bit of a, um, a bit of a, an idea of where I am coming from. Um, you can read some of my bio on, on this, but uh, the way I will approach the Bible and the text today is fully in line with what we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. So even if what I say sounds a bit surprising occasionally, um, remember that I'm grounding myself in that chapter, and especially in its uh, affirmation of the Bible being God's word, being entirely inerrant, being also fully human, and being its own interpreter. And that's that will be a key feature for, for my two talks today, is that the Bible interprets itself, and therefore we can learn to read it 
from her own example. Now, as we turn to the figure of Melchizedek, um, I felt it would be absolutely right and necessary to start with a quote from John Owen. Being the John Owen Center Conference, it felt right to uh, mention his name, uh, especially since, uh, to date, he still has uh, the longest study of the book of Hebrews on record, uh, including on the particular chapter that we are looking at today. So, I think Melchizedek, uh, sorry, not Melchizedek, John Owen, um, uh, uh, does capture uh, some of the central um, uh, concerns and importance of uh, Melchizedek and how Melchizedek is being presented in the scriptures um, in his commentary. And I'll, I'll read a quote from him. Uh, and I know that uh, his English is not the easiest to understand. Um, but um, please bear with me. In order to the end mentioned, the apostle in the first place, declares that antecedently unto the giving of the law and the institution of the Levitical priesthood thereby, God had, without any respect thereunto, given a typical prefiguration of this priesthood of Christ in one who was on all accounts superior unto the Levitical priests when they were afterwards introduced. This sacred truth, which had been hid for so many ages in the church, and which undeniably manifests, manifests the certain future introduction of another and a better priesthood, is here brought to light and improved by the Apostle. As life and immortality, so all spiritual truth was brought to light by the Gospel, citing 2 Timothy 1.10. Truth was stored up in the prophecies, promises, and institutions of the Old Testament, but so stored up as that it was in a great measure hidden also, but was brought forth to light and made manifest in the gospel. And if we have the privilege and advantage of those oracles of God which were committed to them, incomparably above what they attained unto, certainly greater measures of holiness and greater fruitfulness in obedience are expected from us than from them. That was John Owen. I hope what follows will be clear and easier to understand. Um, this is taken from volume 5 of his exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, as you probably noticed, if, for whatever you understood of the quote, read with my accent, um, you probably understood that what he sees as being a very important feature, and maybe the most important feature of this, uh, of this figure, is how... It, uh, it is a lens through which we can see how God reveals himself and how, from a Christian perspective, we can read the Old Testament in particular and benefit from it. And that will be a bit the heart of uh, what we'll be talking about today. Now, um, to, to, to offer a complete study of Melchizedek uh, this today with would take a lot more time that, than was uh, allotted to me. Um, it's, you, you might think it's a bit surprising from, about a figure that is, that is uh, mentioned in so few verses. He's found in four verses in uh, the book of Genesis, one verse in Psalm 110, and then 
uh, he is mentioned in um, less than ten verses in the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And yet, there is so much wealth to uh, what we can learn from him in the scriptures that it would take us many hours uh, to look at him and, and draw from him everything we can uh, learn. Um, in some ways, I, I found myself, as I was preparing, caught between the dilemma of picking one passage and just focus on it and spend the full time on that one passage, drawing out everything there is to see, or taking the big, big picture approach and look at the, the full um, uh, a tapestry of redemptive history and say, look, this is where it fits in there. That would have been easier than what I've decided to do. Um, I've decided to try to limit myself to what the Bible says about Melchizedek and not be drawn too far away from him. Um, and we'll see, and I'm sure you will notice, that uh, it is a challenge to do that. And maybe I failed in the end, to do that fully. But I will try to stick as much as possible to what the Bible says about Melchizedek himself and not stray too far from this. Now, even doing that, uh, we would need to, to see uh, where Melchizedek fit, uh, fits in uh, uh, the bigger picture of uh, God's work of redemption or uh, the bigger history of God's works from creation to the new creation. How Melchizedek is a, uh, is a link in the chain, so to speak, from the first Adam to the last Adam, from the original garden to the new Jerusalem. Because, uh, as I hope you will see it uh, to, to a great extent, this, the meaningfulness of Melchizedek, the uh, uh, revelatory value of Melchizedek, comes from that role he plays in that long chain. And the meaning of who and what he is comes from his being connected to those two figures, the first Adam and the last Adam. We don't have the time to do that, so I will have to um, assume a certain knowledge on your part of, of that bigger picture. Um, and in particular, I will have to assume, uh, to some extent, the fact that Adam in the garden was... Um, was constituted by the covenant that God made with him, or if you don't like the word covenant, the arrangement that God made with him, um, that he was constituted a son to God, and that he was acting as that son. And that role of a son in the garden was in particular uh, articulated around the uh, offices of king, priest, and prophet. Uh, this is where... Uh, the triple office of Christ comes from, because that's, that's the office of Adam, and Christ is fulfilling that. Um, and so the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament from Genesis uh, to, to Malachi is a figure who uh, encapsulates that function, that role, that duty of Adam that he failed to fulfill. And they are cast themselves to an extent, to one extent or another, as a son, as a prophet, as a priest, as a king. And in some ways, you can map all the types of Christ, all the people who prefigure Christ, uh, according to those, to those uh, categories, and, and see how they fit one picture or the other. 
So, uh, we can look at every messianic figure or every topological figure in the history of redemption, um, um, including Melchizedek, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, and understand them in that perspective from the first Adam to the latter Adam, looking at that, um, those different roles and responsibilities. Um, I will not do that in full today, but uh, I will assume that uh, you are familiar to some extent to that way of uh, reading the Old Testament. Um, and uh, I will draw from that in my presentation. Um, you've already heard me use the word uh, typology, or I guess on this side of the uh, Atlantic Ocean, you would say typology. Uh, but um, I don't know how that term, typology, can be uh, controversial. It's been used in a number of ways. Some ways, uh, uh, in some circles, people are happy to use it. In other circles, people are, don't like it. Uh, it sounds too much like allegory. Um, I'm using it in a um, relatively technical uh, sense. Um, so, um, to make it short, uh, typology recognizes historical factuality. The fact that uh, what we see as a type is an actual historical figure or event, but that the meaning, the revelational meaning of that person or event or institution goes beyond the mere historical facts or historical realities and details of that, of that uh, person or event. So it's grounded in history. It is limited to that uh, 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 factual situation, and it is... Uh, uh, um, controlled by biblical and divine uh, a, a biblical and divine framework of interpretation. Allegory assumes that what is being depicted is not historical or factual, and finds in all its uh, various details and, and aspects a expression of a, a rational, moral, spiritual teaching of some kind. So we're not, when I, when I use the term typology, and I, I, will, uh, I will speak quite a bit of that, uh, I, I mean something that is historic grounded, historically grounded, and that is teasing out, if you like, the meaning that God has embedded in those historical events. Uh, I'm not talking about just making the Bible a myth or some um, interesting story, a bit like the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, typology, however, uh, does presuppose a certain understanding of uh, history, the nature of history. So it presupposes a theology of history. It does presuppose a certain theology of revelation. Um, and it does uh, entail a certain uh, uh, understanding of how the whole of Scripture fits together and how it works together and the bigger picture it draws. Um, we don't have the time to go through all this, but... Uh, um, realize that all of this is also understood here as I, I talk of typology. Um, so I will, um, I, I, I will. The way I read the Bible and the typology, I will be following. Uh, if, if you want to, to look at that in more detail, I would encourage you to read the books of uh, Ferrarus Vos, a uh, um, Dutch background American uh, theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and also the works of people like Vern Poitras or uh, Richard Gaffin, and also Meredith Klein. 
to some extent. Um, now, there are different ways we could offer a redemptive historical reading of Melchizedek. Uh, one would be to start with the end point, the final, uh, um, the final presentation of that figure, the final expose of, his, uh, of, of the teaching we can, we can draw from him, and look back from there. So look from the uh, eschatological point of view, the eschatological situation, and look back to the different stages of historical development of that revelation. And that's what Hebrews does. And so the easy route for us today would have been to just follow Hebrews. Just start with Hebrews and just follow where it leads. And, and he would have, the author of Hebrews would have done the work for us. And that was quite tempting. And maybe that's what I should have done. But um, another way to follow that line is to actually start with the beginning and see how that, that initial introduction of the, of the figure of Melchizedek, what it tells us, and then how this moves into the, the other stages of Revelation. Uh, both ways uh, are legitimate, both ways are useful, both ways will highlight different features, different aspects, and therefore will benefit us in different, uh, in different ways. Um, today I chose to follow the chronological, if you like, or canonical order, uh, because I think it, it, um, it is in interesting and important for us to put ourselves a bit in the shoes of, what if I didn't know the end? If we didn't know how the whole story ends, if we didn't know how God eventually, ultimately, fulfilled all his promises, his prophecies, and accomplished his work of redemption in Jesus. How do we, do we understand those texts? How do, would we read them? And, and um, how would we respond to the different stages of Revelation? Um, and um, I think it's helpful to do that. Because as Christians, we often take a lot for granted. And we should. Uh, to some extent. But sometimes I think it prevents us from hearing the word of God on its own terms. In, in some ways, we too quickly bring the final resolution of the story that we know to bear on the interpretation and understanding of the text. And we miss some of the wealth of the text and some of the complexities and sometimes some of the puzzling questions that the text may raise. It's a bit like reading a mystery novel starting by the end, by the final chapter. No? It's, you spoil it. So, um, this morning, uh, uh, let's pretend we, don't, we haven't read all the texts we have read already. We, we, we haven't refreshed our memories. But let's pretend, for the sake of argument, for the sake of our presentation, that we're discovering things as they, as they are revealed. Starting with Genesis, and then we'll move on to uh, Psalm 110, and then... Uh, to the book of Hebrews. Um, now, doing that might be a bit too big of an endeavor, but we'll try to do that. Uh, and um, as, as you've heard, I, I tend to minister in non-Western settings. Um, so I tend not to work from a clear script with neat, um, um, what were the word? Outlines, but more in a storytelling mode, because I, I work more in uh, oral cultures and uh, storytelling cultures. So uh, my hope is to take you with me on the journey, more than give you a, 
well-crafted, well-designed presentation where everything is in order and, and where it should be, but take you on a, on a journey. Uh, also, another thing that comes with it is I'm notorious for losing track of time. Um, but I've asked a few people to warn me if I were to go too long uh, quickly. So let's, let's turn to Genesis 14. Now, let's start from the narrowest lens, or with the narrowest lens we can use, which would be a strictly historical uh, perspective. What do we know, or what are we told about Melchizedek in Genesis 14? Well, we're told that a king, about whom we have not heard before, um, met Abraham as Abraham was returning from a battle with a bunch of kings and from uh, uh, rescuing his, uh, his nephew Lot and those people. Now, what we're told is that Abraham chased those kings all the way uh, north uh, to a city near Dam uh, Damascus. So, far north from Canaan. And as he's coming back from there, first the king of Sodom is coming to meet him, and then this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, to be honest, um, you can read every single book of archaeology that you found, and you will not find anything that will help you here. I mean, of course, we know where Damascus was, we know where from the Bible where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been located. And we know that, therefore, they met Abraham somewhere in between those two places. Salem has been associated with Jerusalem in some traditions. But, one, the Bible doesn't make that connection. And second, historically and archaeologically, um, this is not certain at all that there would be a, that connection between Salem and Jerusalem. In fact, there's good argument to think that the Salem in view it would be actually associated with Shechem, another city. Um, so, we have a figure who is a king coming from a city, and he meets Abraham. And that's about all we know. What we know is that like most kings of the uh, ancient Near East, He's not just a king, but as a king, he, is, he has a strong association with the gods. And in his case, in particular, he is both king and priest. And the title, God Most High, is a title that was used in the local pagan religion of one of the gods of the pantheon. That's about it. We don't know what people, what ethnic group he was part of. In spite of the long uh, genealogies of, uh, that, of, that we find in the book of Genesis, including in chapter 10, the, uh, the map of all the nations and, and uh, uh, tribes and groups of the area, he's not in there. And what people he's actually ruling is not mentioned, is not clearly mentioned. We don't know. He's the king of who? We don't know. Salem as a city, we're not sure where it was. Somewhere between Damascus and Sodom. But where exactly? God knows. Where he's coming from? We don't know. Where he's going? We don't know. 
Who were his forebears? We don't know. Did he meet Abraham before? I mean, it's kind of strange that a king would come out from where he was coming from to meet Abraham, who is, as the text tells us, a Hebrew. Uh, there's, there's debate over exactly what the, the term means, but uh, it seems that it's connected with being a nomad, somebody who's just a foreigner in the land, and that's the way the Greek translation of the Old Testament understands it. Uh, the Septuagint translates it as the nomad. Um, did they know each other from, from somewhere? We don't know. It's, we're not told. Why? What is his motivation? As far as we know, none of his people, none of his belongings were taken away by those uh, foreign kings. So he's not going to meet Abraham to recover something that Abraham would be bringing back. And once we have this encounter with Abraham, where one brings some bread and wine, the other one gives paste tithes, and one blesses the other, we never hear of him again, or his people. So, if we were to use uh, a reading of Scripture that would limit itself to historical facts and things that can be confirmed from external sources, Oh, yeah, by the way, there is absolutely no mention of a Melchizedek in any document or, or stella or anything we know of the ancient Near East. Okay, so there is, there is no trace of him anywhere. Now, he's not the only one, but um, there are quite a few people who are missing. But, uh, but um, we don't know anything about him. So if, if we limit ourselves to this, I can sit down. We're done. Because Psalm 110... And Hebrews does not add any historical, geographic, ethnic, whatever you want to add, information to this. That's all we have. Now, the Bible doesn't um, tell us those things just as a strange record saying, you know, that was this really weird story that happened, you know. You know, we're talking about our father Abraham and, you know, how he's founding our nation and how God gave him uh, great promises and blessing and later a covenant and all those things. And, you know, something really weird happened to him on the way. You know, the kind of things you put on Facebook. You know who I met today on the way to work? I know. Uh, yeah, we don't know anything about this guy. We don't know why it matters. But we've heard that he met a king called Melchizedek. And I think we should, rec- you know, we should put that in the record. Sometimes we treat the Bible as if what we have here is every scrap of information that the authors could find. And if they don't say anything else, it's because they had nothing else to say. And some of the things they've included are basically useless simply because uh, they don't connect with anything else. It's just that's what they had. And so they thought they should record it and pass it on to the next generation because maybe somehow it was important. And that's often the way we read the Bible. Um, now, the Bible says something different about itself, and uh, I won't read the passage, but if you go back to Second Timothy, uh, chapter 3, you'll find that the Bible doesn't think so. It thinks that everything that is included, everything that has been expressed, is actually useful, is valuable for us. And remember that it's, write, it's written to Christians, speaking of the Old Testament. So everything in the Old Testament is actually useful and valuable for us. So, obviously, that's kind of reading of Scripture where we try just to find historical facts. Um, can't be right. And Melchizedek is a good, example, is a good um, 
is a good example of how that just doesn't work in this case. There are cases where we can get away with it, but this is a case where we can't. And especially if we hold to this, when we get to Psalm 110 and we get to Hebrews, then we have to, have, we have to come up with serious questions about their way of reading Genesis. Because a lot of what is said is based on what is not said in Genesis. The silence. And it's based not on historical facts per se, but on the story as it is told. So let's look a bit at the story, if you don't mind. Now, I, I might be using a bit of uh, literary language. Don't hear me as saying this is just a story, a fiction, whatever. It's just it's convenient as we're looking at it as a narrative, as a story. It's more convenient to use that terminology. It helps us look at it in this regard. Um, what we've, the few verses that we have in Genesis for, uh, 14 so, uh, are part of a much bigger story. Now, we can look at it from different angles. It could be it's part of the whole Bible. So uh, it has a, it, it's making a contribution to that bigger story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, to use that term. Um, it is part of the, the, the history, the full history of God's work of redemption. Okay? Um, which I would, uh, I would say starts formally in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, but in some ways, even that passage is presupposing and requires what comes before. So it's starting with Genesis 1, verse 1. But it's part of that bigger, bigger story. And within that bigger story, there are different sub-stories or uh, sub-compilations of stories, if you like. Um, it's like concentric circles, if you like. Um, and in this particular case, to be a bit narrow, um, this story comes right... Um, in the middle of the story of Abraham. Okay? Uh, the story which starts in chapter 12. And goes on until we get to Isaac. And then the passing of Abraham. And then we move on from there to uh, um, the story of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And, and then the other patriarchs. But it's part of that bigger story. Um, and in particular, in the story of Abraham in general. It's, it's coming right in the middle uh, of the, uh, the relationship between Abraham and Lot. Now, that relationship has many facets. Some are obvious. Eventually, Abraham will say, you know what, I don't have any sons. I'll make Lot my heir. That's one of, that's one of the aspects. And obviously, that's a significant one because the, the, the issue of the descendants of Abraham, of the seed of a child, is a pretty important part of that story. In fact, from now on, from after what we've just read, till the end of the life of Abraham, that's the main issue. That's the main story. That's the main concern. So that, that is part of what's going on here. Uh, another aspect of the relationship of Lot and Abraham is how Abraham let Lot choose where he wanted to settle. He said, look, the country is wide open. Pick wherever you want to go and I'll go the other place. I'll choose the other one. And we see Lot picking the best part of the country where there's grass for, for the flock. And it's near a place called Sodom. And so he's getting near to a city. He's getting near uh, a place where there is an economic activity and so on. And so it looks like, even though he already has some wealth, he's going to the place where he can increase his wealth. And as a matter of fact, the story goes that he does. 
the first mention, he chooses to live near Sodom. In chapter 14, we discover that he actually doesn't live near Sodom anymore, but he's actually living in Sodom. He's moved from the country to the city. Urbanization started a long time ago. And later, when uh, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah appears, we find him sitting at the gate, which means he's one of the, uh, of, of the leaders of the city. He's one of the men of, uh, that is respected and can take part in the decisions, the official decisions of the city. So we can see him as he's climbing uh, the scale, the, the, the ladder, uh, the social and economic ladder through the thing. On the other hand, Abraham chooses a place that is desolate. And as here he is, uh, is, uh, is shown, he remains in the eyes of his neighbors, and uh, probably in his own eyes, a nomad. Someone who lives in tents. He doesn't own one square inch of land. He was promised great things from God, a land and uh, uh, children, you know, that he couldn't number and all those things. And, but at this point, he's, he's just a nomad. He's a nobody. He's an exile. He's a foreigner. And so the contrast between Abraham and Lot is quite significant. One obviously has uh, the right kind of wisdom to get his, you know, his pieces moved in the right place so he gets wealthier and more important. And more. The other one remains a nomad. And yet... At the same time, it is very clear that God's blessing is on Abraham and not Lot. Um, especially in line of the issue of descendants and uh, genealogy later, it's very important that we see that Lot is, a, is not a legitimate descendant. He's not a legitimate heir. That he's made the wrong choices, the wrong decisions. He's in the wrong line. Though God will bless him. But yet later in the story of Israel, his descendants will be a problem. Eventually. And we see that with several of the, uh, the, the people who are involved with Abraham and his descendants. They will, their own descendants will eventually become challengers, opponents, enemies of the genuine, legitimate son and grandson and great-grandson. So, um, so this story is happening a bit in the, in the middle of all that development of the relationship of Abraham with Lot and the contrast that is being developed between Abraham, Lot, and Abraham, and then later uh, uh, Isaac and Lot. Um, but also how one trusts God to provide and trusts God's promises. The other one provides for himself with his own way, using the means of this world. And in the middle of that story, um, we see here one of the times when Abraham will be vindicated, that he made the right decision. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is actually blessed. He is the one who does what God wants. And so his, his legitimacy and his claims to the blessings of God and, uh, are confirmed, reaffirmed, reconfirmed, insisted upon many, many ways. And that's, that's one of the places where it's done. Now, quickly, uh, in Genesis 11, we have the story of Babel. And um, that story is a story that ends with utter despair. Once again, mankind has failed. Once again, mankind is punished as a whole. And, but one of the differences with what happened in the garden or what happened uh, with the flood is that at the end of the story of Babel, there is no hope. There is no one who is righteous that 
God would work through, again, in spite of the disaster. With Adam and Eve, there is the promise of a son who will resolve the problem. With Noah, even though all of mankind and the earth has been destroyed, there is Noah and his, and his sons and, and their wives who are there. So there is something left from which we can expect a, re, a, a, a new movement, a new birth, a new hope. With Genesis 11, there is none. All of mankind is scattered on the face of the earth as a judgment, no longer as a blessing. And God is cut off from them. There is no communication. There is no interaction between God and the world. There's a very dark, dark picture being painted there. And it's, that's the background for the calling of Abraham. As we are faced with utter despair, hope comes when God calls Abraham out of Ur, out of his family, out of uh, uh, paganism and idolatry, and gives him his promise. And ultimately gives him a covenant and a son. Genesis 13, um, we, we can start to see some of those promises or uh, this, this positive perspective being, being given about Abraham. We see it develop. But we also see some issues and some challenges. It's not just a, uh, a beautiful picture of everything is perfect. There are problems. And some of those problems will have severe consequences in the future as they appear. But, Generally speaking, we are presented with a stable situation. Abraham was chosen, he's blessed, he settles, and things are going pretty well. And that's when we get to the story of Genesis 14. How does Abraham get involved with the local geopolitical conflicts? Usually, as a foreigner, you can always say, you know, I'm a foreigner, I don't have to get involved. That's one of the blessings of living in a foreign country. When people ask you, so who do you think I should, you know, who who of the two candidates do you think is the best? You can say, I don't have to have an opinion. Doesn't concern me. Um, So, but in this case, Abraham is drawn into it because, not because he actually cares about the king of Sodom or those things, but because Lot is being taken away. And the text is very clear about that, that Abraham gets involved and fights because Lot and his family and his belongings have been taken away. Um, now, it's an interesting story in and of itself. We could spend a lot of time on it. Uh, we have those kings, some of which uh, are pretty significant kings. Um, and it deals with the dynamics of uh, how some kings are to serve other kings, and but sometimes uh, revolt and then uh, are being brought back under the tutelage of the original king and, and all those dynamics of war and taking uh, all the spoils and people and so on. Um, but that's more of a background. That's not what is actually significant about what's going on here. Um, Abraham, the foreigner, the nomad, the nobody, is the one who is used to defeat that coalition of great kings. The local kings couldn't. And he, with his band of 318 people, goes after them, defeats them, to, to a serious extent, destroys them, pursues them far out of the land. In fact, out of the promised land. There is a lot of... Uh, that's not a topic. Abraham is not a topic, so I cannot go too far in there. But uh, 
um, there's a lot of typological work here, uh, or, or uh, meaning here in Abraham chasing those enemies out of his land. The land that was promised to him, but that he doesn't own yet. Um, and God gives him victory and uh, success, and he's bringing back everything and everybody. It's pretty amazing. It's quite amazing. And as he's on his way back, this is when he encounters Melchizedek. And at the end, and the king of Sodom, there's another thing here. Um, but at the end of that story, immediately after that story, God comes to Abraham and talks to him. And says, I will bless you. It's like, well, it's pretty obvious. He's just done it. He's just, you know, he's allowed him to beat that coalition of kings, to bring back everybody, uh, to earn some respect. Uh, and, God, and Abraham says, well, how are you going to? Okay, great. You want to give me great blessings and great things. Well, so what? I don't have a son. Who will inherit this stuff? You know, I'm already old. What, what's the benefit? What's, what's the value of this? And this is when uh, God not only promises a son and dismisses the suggestion that he could use one of his servants as the heir, but also this is when God will formally make a covenant with Abraham that will bind him to Abraham and to his promises for good and forever. So this little story in chapter 14 is, is, is at a key point in the story of Abraham and how between the time when God called Abraham out of Ur to the time when he actually gives him his, 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 um, his uh, covenant, how the story comes in place and, and, and how Abraham is being depicted for us and how God is working in and through Abraham and with what is following. And so this figure of Melchizedek is in many ways very obscure, but it's coming at a very important point in the story. It is quite significant. But, um, in many ways, Melchizedek is very frustrating in this story. Or, not him as a person, but as a character in the story. First, he's very disruptive. Um, if you like stories that flow well and... Uh, um, with great continuity, you will hate Melchizedek. Because he's interrupting everything. He's almost interrupting sentences in the text. To that point. I mean, he's so disruptive that he goes even into the grammar and syntax of a text. He appears out of nowhere. He, uh, um, he robs the king of Sodom of his thunder and everything, because the story goes, and the king of Sodom came out to meet Abraham. So, transition in the story, you know, where we, we left the king of Sodom running away, disappearing in uh, an area full of uh, um, asphalt pits, maybe having disappeared in one of those pits himself, and, you know, uh, would be preserved like mammoth and other things in those pits. He disappears, and for, as far as we can tell, he may be dead, he may have gone out of the country, he may be on a different planet, we don't know, he's just gone. And then Abraham takes over. And as Abraham is coming back with all the spoil of war and the people, that king appears again. He just emerges out of nowhere and comes to meet Abraham. And so as we're moving into a new phase of the story about the relationship of Abraham and the king of Sodom, what happens? Melchizedek. Coming from nowhere, 
having no former relationship with Abraham, no appearance in the, at least the king of Sodom was present in the story before, and the city of Sodom has been introduced and mentioned a number of times. But Melchizedek disappears out of nowhere. He has no genealogy. When every single person in the story, we always know who they're connected to. A brother, a, a parent, uh, a tribe, an ethnic group, a, a city. We, we know where they're from, not Melchizedek. He's coming from nowhere. He's coming from no one. He's just barges in the story, unannounced and uninvited. And when he's done with what he's, he's got to, to do, we go back to the king of Sodom as if nothing had happened. You know, we're told he's coming to meet Abraham. Melchizedek happens. And then we're told what he tells Abraham. In very few words. In fact, in six words. It's a very short discourse. It's a very short speech. And it's not a very nice one. It's a bit rude, you know. No thank you, no please, no hi, no how you doing. No, no, it's just give me this, take that. So, uh, Melchizedek, he's, he's, he's disrupting the, the story as a whole. He's disrupting the natural flow. He's disrupting the story of the king of Sodom. He's challenging it. He's creating many contrasts. The most obvious one is between him and the king of Sodom. Between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Many things will contrast the two, those two figures. But he also contrasts with the broader surroundings. And he, in many ways, serves to highlight or to better maybe to concentrate the light on Abraham and God's work in and through Abraham and how Abraham is indeed the man chosen by God. The king of Sodom comes from the tar pit in a way that is aggressive, in a way that is fearful of Abraham. I mean, think about it. You're a small king in, in, in a part of the world where everybody's trying to eat everybody. You've just been crushed pretty badly by other kings, and everything you own was stolen from you. Okay? And you were um, bound with other kings in this battle, and you were all crushed. And you have this weird foreigner, this nomad living in tents, who's moved into the, the area not too long ago, and that guy is able to beat the guy who beat you. That's a bit scary for your future. Because basically what it says is, if Abraham wanted to, he could take over. And we know from the story that Abraham was, has been promised, that's in chapter 13, has been promised that someday all this land will belong to him. It's just there. He can just take it. And the king of Sodom knows that. Worse, he's got his nephew to live in the city. That nephew seems to be quite prosperous. He's got his, he's got his, 
you know, he weighs in the system through his family. And in the, at the time, family was pretty important. It's not like today in the West where it doesn't matter. You know, it's called, what is it called, uh, nepotism? When you try to bring, to get your own family members or friends into the system. But there, it's, that's the way it works. It's through family. Family ties. So you have this king of Sodom who's afraid, who's ashamed. It's a shame culture, so that doesn't help. Who's dealing with Abraham in a demanding way. And you have this Melchizedek, coming from God knows where, who actually brings out food. He's bringing out not just food, but the kind of food that you bring for someone who's important. Bread is a basic food, but usually when you're just feeding a warrior who's coming back, you give him bread and water. That's enough. But he's bringing wine. And the interesting thing is that he doesn't owe Abraham a thing. Abraham didn't do anything to save his people or to protect his people. So he doesn't owe Abraham anything. He's not coming to say thank you for what you've done. He's actually the one coming, positive, to bless Abraham. And he's blessing him in a kingly manner. Narratively speaking, Melchizedek is recognizing the legitimate claims of Abraham on the land, on the place. So the one who owes everything to Abraham is scared of him and knows that someday that guy is going to take over and doesn't want that. The one who doesn't owe Abraham anything is the one who's bringing out food for him and his people and, and glorious food. And he also blesses him. He also pronounces a blessing. He's asking God to bless him. And he's blessing God. He's praising God for what Abraham has done. So you have this figure who comes, I said, out of nowhere. Who's just highlighting God's blessing on Abraham. And how Abraham is indeed the man who is the legitimate owner, if you like. The legitimate king of this place. And that he is indeed blessed by the God Most High. So through him, we have God saying, yes, this is my man. Not only what I've said is true, but look what I've done through him in the defeat of those people. And look, it's even confirmed by this Melchizedek, who was king and priest, and he's obviously also a prophet. In that uh, he is speaking God's blessing on Abraham. And also, in the situation of Genesis 11, only those that God calls directly can know of him, like Abraham. So, Melchizedek, Melchizedek could not come up with a faith in the same God as Abraham on his own. It took God's revelation to do that in a similar way as Abraham. Now, the difference is we know where Abraham comes from, but we don't know where this Melchizedek comes from. And we don't have any record of how he would have known the true God. But we know that he is the priest of that true God. Because he is described as the priest of the God Most High. And later, when Abraham talks to the king of Sodom, he actually describes himself as having made an oath to that very same God. He's using the exact same expression as the one that is used for the, for the God that uh, Melchizedek is serving. So there is no doubt that Melchizedek is serving the true God. No doubt whatsoever. 
He's not a pagan priest who just happened uh, to understand that the highest God in the pantheon was probably more important than was the one who was behind Abraham's success. He's a priest of the true God. That's why, it, and that's recognized by Abraham paying tithes to him. See, there's a mutual legitimacy, uh, legitimacy going on here. Um, Melchizedek is is used narratively to, to uh, establish the uh, legitimacy of Abraham, but at the same time, Abraham demonstrates that this man is indeed a servant of the true God by paying tithe and by reusing the same description of the God that they are both serving. So, Melchizedek is a fascinating figure here, but it's fascinating especially because of what he uh, is used to reveal about others. He's, he's a bit of a, um, like those chemicals you use to make pictures. Uh, you need that chemical to make the, the colors and the shapes appear on the, on the paper. And so he's, he's this person who comes from nowhere and, and goes nowhere. We don't know where he's disappearing from there. Um, but through him, we see clearly. The light shines and we see clearly. And we see especially who is Abraham. So theologically, uh, Melchizedek is raising all kinds of issues, all kinds of questions. Now, as I said, uh, we don't know where he comes from. And we know from Genesis 11 that uh, God has cut off all ties with mankind as such. And the only exception that we know of till this point is Abraham himself. But it's also clear that God has a particular purpose for Abraham. So there is something unique about Abraham anyway that might justify this uniqueness of God's interaction with him. But Melchizedek is clearly functioning here as a priest of the true God as a divine messenger of this true God in his blessing of Abraham. And he's confirming God's promises to Abraham and and the calling of Abraham. And also he's a king. um, But he's a king who seems to recognize, to some extent, the authority of Abraham over himself at some level, in some way. He's not giving him his kingdom right there, but he knows that someday Abraham or his descendants will be the kings, the legitimate kings. How did that happen? Well, we don't know. When did that happen? Well, we don't know. It just happens. And like lightning, it comes, makes everything bright, and then disappears. It's also interesting to note that uh, Melchizedek is the first person in the scriptures to be uh, uh, given the title priest. In fact, that will lead to a lot of Jewish speculation that you find uh, in particular in uh, uh, Josephus. Um, but he's the first person being explicitly called a priest. Now, there are um, a number of reasons for that, probably, but it's still quite intriguing. Now, there are people before him who obviously do priestly things, um, like giving sacrifices. But he is the first one to be identified specifically as a priest. Just at the time when he's meeting Abraham, who himself will serve a bit as a priest, but will be the father, as we're we hear more later, of, uh, of the priestly line of the Levites.
one question that is often asked, especially in evangelical circles, is what is the uh, salvation status of this Melchizedek? Is he just a pagan who, through whom God speaks um, in spite, let's say, of his paganism? Or is he the kind of pagan that would be uh, righteous in some ways and would be therefore found righteous in God's eyes in spite of being a pagan in some way? Or, and I would, personally I would hold to the third one, um, is he someone to whom God's revelation has been given in, the, in a similar or a parallel way as it was given to Abraham in a time when uh, certain patterns were not yet in place? We're in a transitional time between the uh, early times when God is interacting with all human beings somewhat in the same way and with no institution, uh, institutional structures and patterns. And this is changing with Abraham. With Abraham, there is a uh, uh, concentration of all of God's interaction with mankind into one man and his descendants. There is a radical, absolute particularity that is starting here. But before Abraham, that wasn't the case. So, we're still in this in-between transitional stage. But to call Melchizedek a holy pagan, which is a term that has been used, um, is just misunderstanding the nature, first, of biblical history, but in particular of redemptive history, and the stage in which we are there. And he, he, uh, he cannot be seen as someone who is not part of God's... Um, um, of the history of God's uh, work of redemption and of the history of God's uh, special revelation, but would have obtained somehow salvation through this, uh, separately from this. He is clearly a man who serves the true God and knows the true God, and in the context of the story of Genesis, can have done that only because that true God has revealed himself to him in a specific, particular manner. But this is raising a lot of issues in terms of theology of religions. And Melchizedek has been used to, uh, as a figure to justify all kinds of positions. In fact, there is even a, a theologian who has created a, who has called uh, uh, the notion that people can encounter savingly the true God outside of biblical revelation, has called that the Melchizedek principle. Um, there's the Abraham principle, which is special revelation. There's the uh, demonic uh, corruption of revelation that would be the satanic principle and then there's this general revelation but saving through, saved through general revelation principle which would be called the Melchizedek principle um, and you find that in uh, it's uh, Don Richardson uh, the one who wrote uh, the peace child and the things so um, there's even no ideas that Melchizedek might be a divine being of some kind as I said he's coming out of nowhere He's going nowhere. He doesn't have any parent. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He doesn't have a clear location. The, his name is highly symbolic. You know, Melchizedek literally means my king is righteous or king of righteousness, depending on how you want to translate it. And it, it is written in Hebrew in our, in our um, editions as two different words, Melchizedek. Um, though it is clearly uh, one name, it's in two parts. Uh, and Salem is understood by Hebrews, and uh, rightly so, as, as actually a reference to Shalom, uh, peace, so king of peace. So, he, you could take his, his name and his description are, are very symbolical in nature, and you could take them as to say, well, 
they're just a way of uh, saying he's an unusual person and he's not actually a real human being. And in fact, there is speculation uh, in uh, history over the notion that Melchizedek was actually an angel, the uh, angel of the Lord himself. So it would be a pre-incarnate Christ figure. Um, or it was simply God himself. Um, you know, a few chapters later, we'll, we'll see, I mean, we won't, but uh, the book tells us of three men who come to visit Abraham. And as those men sit down to talk to him, it's the Lord who's talking. And then two of them go on to Sodom, and they're described as angels. So maybe Melchizedek is one of those figures. Now, I don't think so, and, I don't, and Hebrews make clear that it doesn't, the author of Hebrews doesn't think so either. But those are the kind of things that have been suggested by this intriguing figure. But what I think is very important about Melchizedek here is to see that whatever is told us about him and what he did, ultimately, the focus, the interest, the concern is not him. He's there, for the lack of a better term, as a foil for Abraham. He is a contrasting figure with the king of Sodom. He is revealing what God is doing and the meaning of what God is doing in, in and through Abraham in all those circumstances. But ultimately, it's not about him. We, we know very little about him as a person, as an individual. In fact, we know virtually nothing about him other than he met Abraham and did those things. So, from there, we go to Psalm 110. It's another quite surprising and unexpected reference. In the book of Psalms, having a reference to Melchizedek is a bit of a surprise. That's not, we wouldn't really expect it, especially an obscure figure like that. Um, to, to get another example, if, you know, there are other obscure figures in the Bible. I think of Jabez, for example. Uh, they appear in one little story and never appear again and have no further reference, even indirect or even light or subtle or anything like that. You really know him. Um, so Melchizedek could be one of those shooting stars, just appears and disappears. However, he doesn't. He reappears in the book of Psalm. And especially in Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is, 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 a, uh, is a very significant psalm and a very important one in many ways. Um, it's a psalm of David, and it's part of the, the early psalms of this final section of the book of Psalms, uh, which introduces the, uh, eventually uh, the uh, Psalms of Ascent. And they, they all have a prospective kind of looking forward to what God will do in the future kind of, kind of dimension. Um, but that psalm in particular is, is extremely strongly messianic. It's speaking of the king, a, David, uh, a Davidic king, it's talking about the Messiah who is to come. It is strongly eschatological. The references to the future and what God will do in the future are, 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 are uh, explicit, very clear. The, the, the theme of judgment uh, takes over about half of that song. Um, and not surprisingly, this is the psalm, the one psalm that is the most cited or alluded to in the New Testament. Of all the 150 psalms, the one that proved to be the most significant for the New Testament writers, the one that is most ponderous, if you'd like, 
is that little psalm, those few verses. Now, most of the references are to the first verse of the psalm. Uh, and um, I, I will not read it again, but uh, 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 that's the one that Jesus will use, uh, Paul will use to, to, uh, to, to prove and argue for a number of things, but especially that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised son of David. Um, but this is a psalm that, that uh, is, is uh, significant for the understanding of the Old Testament and of the Messiah in light of David. And it's in that context that his reference to Melchizedek appears. Now, it's a psalm about the king. Okay? And at the time of David, uh, because of the law of Moses, there is a clear distinction between the offices of king, priest, and prophet. Or is there? Well, there is. And yet, we find a number of figures who seem to be crossing the boundaries. Samuel. Samuel is a judge. He's a prophet. He's a priest. David. David is a bit of an interesting figure. I mean, he's obviously a king. He's explicitly said to be a prophet. And he does a few things that only priests should do or are allowed to do, including eating the bread. Of proposition. In fact, Jesus will use that argument uh, in some of his debates with the Pharisees. Haven't you read what David did? And uh, his connection with the sanctuary is also unique. His, his concern over the ark and bringing the ark over to Jerusalem and building the temple and all those things are almost mosaic. There's a bit of Moses in there. But there's clearly a, a priestly dimension to, 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 to his figure, to his, to his character. And, and, and therefore, there is, uh, through him and in his descendants, there is something of that that remains attached to their, to their kingship. And Psalm 110 makes that completely explicit for us. And not only is it that the, the ultimate descendant, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of the promise of God to, to, uh, to, to David... Uh, will be slightly priestly like his forebears. But we're told, you are a priest. You are. That's more than a promise. That's a declaration. Hebrews will call that an oath. And not are you just a priest, but you are a priest forever. And that's where that there's the reference of, uh, to Melchizedek that is very surprising. After the order of Melchizedek. Wait, 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 wait. What? What about Moses? What about Sinai? What about the Pentateuch? Didn't you establish, didn't God establish there the priesthood in a way that it would belong to the tribe of Levi and especially in terms of the priest, priestly uh, responsibilities to the descendants of Aaron. Melchizedek is not even a, has no family relationship with Abraham whatsoever. How could the Messiah, who's supposed to be the fulfillment of all those institutions, 
be a priest defined around a figure who's not even a member of the family. When we know that being a descendant of so-and-so was key, essential, to being qualified for the position. And, and what is that order of Melchizedek? It's interesting that here, um, I'm using the ESV. Um, here, the ESV is, uh, uh, its translation of the Hebrew is, is following the cue of the Greek a little bit. Now, there, there is a, there's not a difference of meaning between the Hebrew of this verse and the Greek in that there would be really different things. But the Greek is a bit more specific than the Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew entails more of a likeness, resemblance. You, you'll be like him. You'll be in a similar way than him. Then the Greek makes it very clear it's more formal than that. Yes, what it has in mind is that you will be a priest in a way that is similar to the way Melchizedek was a priest. But it's using a term that is more formal than just resemblance. And that's, what, that's why we translate it in English after the order, the class. The, that particular type of priestly institution. And that's the text that is reused in Hebrews. Hebrews quotes the Septuagint uh, on this text, uh, word for word. Uh, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, you are a priest forever, and your priesthood is defined, determined by Melchizedek. And that's the promise, or the oath that God is making to this Messiah figure, this descendant of David. This is very strange. This is very odd and surprising, isn't it? I mean, don't you think so? It seems to be violating the Mosaic law. It seems to be dismissing entirely the covenant with Moses. It seems to be uh, bypassing all the institutions there, especially the one that seemed to be pretty central to the whole thing. The priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. Now, there are more questions here. It, um, okay, we find that in this, in, this, in this psalm, David, it's a psalm of David. David saying, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, when did God say that? I mean, it's a psalm of David. So we, we do have the life of David recorded for us. And we, we do have a number of pronouncements of God or promises of God to David, including the fact that uh, one of his descendants would be uh, ruling forever and, and so on. But where did God say anything like that in the story of David? At what point? I mean, even if we don't have it recorded in those words, do we have any event or anything like that that we could connect with it? Nope. In fact, it seems that it goes a bit in the other way because God tells David that he cannot build a temple because he's a man of war. He's a man whose hands are sore with blood. One of his descendants will be building the temple. So there seems to be a bit of a distance put there. And yet, we're told that God has sworn. And, and, and in a... In an emphatic way, it's not only has he sworn, but he will not change. If we had any doubts, he will not change his mind. Which is it's a bit strange when you think, well, it seems like he just changed his mind. So, 
what does it mean to be a priest forever? I mean, what, what, does, what is in view here? I mean, with David, when God says, you know, one of your descendants will be on the throne forever, you can always think, well, you know, it just means he will have a son and a grandson and a great-grandson, and, and that line will continue on forever, a good, unending dynasty, and that's, that's fine. Now, we know from Scripture that, and Jesus will make that argument, and Paul will make that argument, that ultimately what is in view is not that, is view that one of his descendants will be eternally reigning. But at that point, we can understand this way, but for a priest, what does it mean to be a priest forever? And, and especially, what is unique? What is, what, is, what is it about Melchizedek that is so significant? I mean, look at Genesis 14. What do we know of Melchizedek as a priest? Well, we know that he is a priest of the same God that Abraham worships and serves. That's it. So, so what is so significant about Melchizedek that it's, 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 it's necessary for the Messiah to be a priest according to Melchizedek, following the pattern of Melchizedek, rather than the pattern of Aaron and his descendants? With what we know of Genesis, there is no way we can answer this. There is no background for us to make sense of it. Uh, in terms of historical events or things that are recorded or told us. It comes out of the blue. And you can imagine that uh, Jews who were singing those psalms, especially after the exile, when they came to that one, they must have stumbled and said, What? Because... That's saying that the priest, the promised priest, is someone who seems to be connected not to Abraham, but to somebody outside of the line of Abraham. So, another question is, who is the Lord? We're talking, you know, it's, it's talking about, it's the verse 1. Uh, David saying, my Lord. He's speaking to my Lord. That's another question that has been asked and is actually debated in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus does debate it. Um, so, I mean, it's not surprising that Psalm 110 drew a lot of attention to Jews and to early Christians, because it's very surprising. And um, it has led to a number of readings and re-readings of uh, Genesis 14. And it, it's raising a lot of issues, a lot of questions. When you start looking at 110 and you look back to Genesis 14, back to 110, Genesis 14, and then in the middle, you remember, wait a minute, in the middle there's been all this story going on with the, uh, Isaac and Jacob and uh, the 12 patriarchs and 400 years in Egypt and then Moses and then the, the conquest and the judges and you know, all of this. And we get to David and we have this moment thinking, how do we connect the dots? What does it mean? Now, as far as uh, Melchizedek is concerned, we don't learn anything about him here. No new information. The only new thing is that somehow he's a model for the eschatological messianic priest. But why and how? We don't know. So, once again, Melchizedek is, is a lens through which Light is shed on other people, but not on him. He is uh, a mystery, but he's a mystery that reveals, surprisingly. 
Now, theologically here, there's a lot of stuff too. I mean, in terms of understanding the law and the place of the Mosaic covenant and the institutions of the covenant and how that relates to God and how God is working and whether his word is trustworthy. I mean, did he really just change his mind? Did he just wipe out a thousand years of history? Did God just change his mind? So theologically, there's a lot of questions related to this, to this verse. And uh, Christologically, or messianically, it's earth-shattering. It's, it's, it's revealing something that, uh, uh, though there, there were already hints that the Messiah would be of a priestly nature, but here where his, his priesthood is anchored somewhere we did not expect at all. It seems to be that it's one of those uh, uh, thrillers, those, those mystery novels where uh, you suddenly discover uh, you know, the, the, the ending and you think, there's no way I could have guessed that. You never gave me the right information. In fact, your ending is inconsistent with the information you gave me. That's poor writing. Okay? It's a, it, I, I, I love, um, um, when I was a kid, I loved the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. But it always was frustrating at the end. Because you could never guess the ending. Because the ending was when you were given the information you needed to, to know what happened. But it, wasn't, so it, it was always frustrating. Um, so maybe that's what's going on here. But also hermeneutically, in terms of how we read scripture, this is quite intriguing. How do we do, how do we connect those two texts? How do we read and understand them? And that's exactly what happens in Hebrews. Hebrews is stumbling, I mean, the author of Hebrews is not stumbling like by chance, but in terms of his argument, he is going back to this psalm, which we know from the New Testament, that it, it clearly was a, a key text for early Christians to understand the, the, the person of Jesus and his role as the Messiah and what happened in his life and death and resurrection and, and his ascension into heaven. They, they all went back to that text to make sense of it. They all stumbled onto this verse and what it meant. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, in the section that uh, is relevant in chapter 7, is actually not studying Genesis 14. He's actually studying Psalm 110. That's the passage that is quoted and cited several, and alluded to several times in the epistle to the Hebrews. And in chapter 7, verses 1, and th uh, 1 through 3, he goes back to the story of Genesis 14 to make sense of Psalm 110. To understand what it's about. And if you look at it, he does bring up some of the facts or uh, the elements that are being uh, 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 um, recorded for us in that story. The name of uh, Melchizedek, the fact that he's king of Salem. The fact that Abraham paid tithes to him, that uh, he blessed Abraham. Those things are recorded for us. And he's, 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 he's anchoring his understanding of the Psalm 110 and its significance for Christ in those facts, those actual events. But he's moving beyond that to the meaning of those facts and also to the meaning of the silences of the story. Nowhere in Genesis or Psalm 110 is Melchizedek described positively as someone who had no father or mother. Genesis doesn't say that there was this king and that king appeared on the earth without natural parents. It's just not mentioning them. 
The text doesn't say he has no genealogy, it's just not recording one. So, Hebrews is telling us, if we want to understand Melchizedek, and if we want to understand how Psalm 110 can come and be consistent with Melchizedek, and then person of Christ in Hebrews, um, we must understand a bit better the nature of the text, the nature of what's going on. In Hebrews, we are told explicitly that this Melchizedek, who is those things and so on, was made in the likeness of the Son of God. That's the key. I mean, if there is one interpretation key to the whole thing, this is it. Melchizedek is significant because in the history of redemption, in the history of revelation, he was made by God. Whether we're talking about the God sovereignly controlling history and the actual person, Melchizedek, or we understand in the way it was recorded in the book of Genesis, the way it was written, or both. I'm inclined to take both. Um, in one way or another, God gave us Melchizedek so that he would resemble, he would reflect something of the Son of God that would enable us to understand Christ. And in context of Hebrews, Son of God is not Jesus incarnated, but it is the eternal divine person. And how that person is the model after whom Adam was made a son, after whom kingship, prophethood, priesthood are to be understood. And Melchizedek reveals those features of the Son of God as they are relevant and uh, essential to understand Jesus in his incarnation. In Christ, we have the divine archetype, if you'd like, united with the eschatological fulfillment of the type that is Adam and that we find repeated in various figures, including Melchizedek. So, I was planning to spend a bit more time on Hebrews, but I ran out of time. Um, but it's fitting, because Hebrews doesn't speak at all about Melchizedek. It really speaks about Christ. So, I will stop here. Uh, in, in conclusion, I think, it's, it's just amazing to see how a figure like Melchizedek, who's uh, very intriguing, uh, really is there as a, uh, as, a, as a means through which God speaks about his own work of salvation and how it's fulfilled in Christ. Um, if, you like to, if you take one step back from what is taught in Scripture, as we, think, as we reflect on it, um, Melchizedek is very helpful and very important in understanding how revelation, biblical revelation, functions. And how in particular we can connect the Old Testament with the person of Christ. And how we can understand Christ through the Old Testament and how we can understand the Old Testament through Christ. And so, um, if we take one more step backwards, uh, through Melchizedek and the way he's treated in the Bible, we can learn a lot about how to read the Bible. What we can expect from it, what it is for, what it is about, and how to do it. So, I'll stop here.
I'm sure you would all like me to thank Fabienne very much for taking us into the text of Scripture, uh, getting us to see what is there and what is not there. And we're very grateful to you for um, grounding this conference very rigorously and thoroughly in Scripture for us. Um, we don't have much time, but we do have a little bit of time for questions. Perhaps you'd give us a little bit more time this afternoon if you can, and maybe some of the issues arising from this morning we can take up there as well. Um, we're doing the roving mic, are we? Yeah, good. So we normally start with questions for clarification, and really what we mean by that is, if you've got a question which is to Flavien, did you mean... That's not a question for clarification. That's for elaboration. and that's what. But if you've got a question that is, did you say, that's what we want now. So if you just didn't catch something or there's something that you didn't understand that isn't going to take the discussion further, but just let's deal with those things first. If there are any, because I think what you said was...